Hi everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere, our monthly roundup of news events and developing stories across South Asia. I'm Raisa and I'm joined by my colleagues Shubanga, Marlon and Shweta from Colombo, as well as Aimon from Karachi and Sana from New Delhi. Hi guys. Hey. Hello. Hi. Hi. Our main story this week will be unpacking what's happening in Sri Lanka and especially the political implications of what the shift in power will be. Thanks, Raisa. And I think uh, our listeners might have followed the extensive coverage on media on Sri Lanka for the last few months. Um, so these new developments were uh, precipitated after massive crowds poured into the capital from all over Sri Lanka on July 9th, um, despite facing immense difficulties like um, fuel shortages and uh, you know, a crippled uh, public transport. Still, they came in their thousands. And uh, for me, it was just uh, surreal to see that many people congregated in one place. Um, there was uh, excessive force used by the armed forces uh, and the police in the morning. And a, a protester was shot and killed. Um, then uh, the crowd occupied uh, the official residence of the president and the presidential secretariat. After that, the mood of the protest completely changed and um, you could see people walking into these premises which were hitherto exclusive to the public um, and people just started, you know, having a great time. Um, Sana and Ayman, while, you know, we were living through this and we were seeing it, I'm curious (laughs) to know how it seemed to you two. Uh, Did it seem like that bleep crazy from afar? I mean, I will be honest, yes, it was crazy, but like it was very, yeah, it was quite powerful too, because uh, I mean, we have been following the protest since the start and it has been what around 100 days, yeah. like since the protesters have been peacefully protesting, laying down their demands. And then to see everything culminate to that day and like, uh, and to actually make the president who wasn't ready to resign flee the country to no one knew where. Mm. I mean, literally felt like watching a film. And, uh, you know, the videos where we could see people walking long distances to reach the protest site because there were few transport options. I think yeah. actually showed how frustrated and angry people must be with the fuel and food crisis and overall situation of the economy. And uh, I was also curious to like see how protesters and protests unfold now since Ranil has been elected as the president. And I think one of the demands of the protesters was also the resignation of Ranil along with Gotabaya. Yeah, I just wanted to follow up on that. I was also interested in knowing what was the general perception among Sri Lankans about Gotabaya's escape during, you know, what looked like a moment of massive victory for the people. But the question is, where is Gotabaya Rajapaksa? The man at the centre of the storm has reportedly fled to Maldives. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs confirms that Mr Rajapaksa has been allowed entry into Singapore on a private visit. Um, The general perception, I mean, I I think it's quite difficult to put into words. I'm sure we were were all grappling with a lot of uh, complex uh, emotions. I mean, we were up early in the morning because, uh, you know, our colleagues from Maldives were giving us updates. 
And um, there's actually a really informative article that I can recommend, which lists out exactly how the events unfolded. And, you know, we were all glued to the screen. And uh, I think the flight he was from Maldives to Singapore, uh, it set a record for the most tracked flight of all time. And uh, I think I, I remember what what Shubanga said afterwards. It was like a high speed car chase, but without <laughs> the cars or anyone chasing them. So um, Sri Lankans were all waiting for him to land in Singapore uh, because um, uh, it was announced that this is when the official resignation would come in. And uh, finally, after about 20 hours of you know collective anxiety, the resignation finally came, um, which meant one of the key demands of the protest that continued for months was achieved. Uh, the other demand uh, was the resignation of the PM, Ranil Wickremesinghe. Um, he did not resign, but you know, as you know, he took up the role of acting president and now he is elected the president. Yes, Marlon. On Wednesday, 20th July, Sri Lanka's parliament elected acting president Ranil Vikramasinghe as the eighth executive president with 134 lawmakers in the 225-member parliament voting in favor. And this victory means he will serve out the rest of the presidential term until November 2024. This vote was a three-way contest through a secret ballot for presidency uh, between Ranil Vikramasinghe, the Rajapaksha-aligned and now-independent Dallas Alahaparama, and the leftist leader of the People's Liberation Front, JVP, uh, Aruna Kumar Disanayaka. Although opposition leader Sajid Premadasa previously announced he would contest, um, he withdrew his bid and pledged his support for Alahaparama on Tuesday. Now, for those of uh, those of our listeners not closely following party politics in Sri Lanka, we should perhaps also mention how unusual uh, you know these developments are at so many levels. I mean, one of them being that Vikramasinghe is the only representative of his party in the house, um, and that the votes that you know actually made in the president have largely come from his former rival party. Uh, Raisa, could you give us a quick snapshot of his recent? Uh, political career and how he managed to, you know, achieve the necessary votes in the parliament? Sure, Shubanka. Um, well, you could say that him kind of uh, getting the post of president was almost a foregone conclusion once the SLPP announced that they were backing Ranil Vikramasinghe as their candidate. Since they do hold the majority of seats in parliament and the vote was decided by secret ballot through parliament, in line with the process which is laid out in our constitution, Although it was an unusual choice as he was previously leader of the UNP and opposition leader, there was a bit of a tussle there because uh, there was another candidate who was also backed by the SLPP. But, um, you know, given that the establishment, you know, the core group of the SLPP kind of indicated early on that they were backing Ranil, you could say that it was pretty much a foregone conclusion. Uh, Now that this has happened, um, the next step is to appoint an interim government, which will consist of uh, representatives from different uh, parties. Until then, what we're hearing is uh, that Vikramasinghe plans to continue on with the last appointed uh, cabinet until opposition parties are ready to cooperate and form an all-party government. And in a twist of fate, Vikramasinghe, who as I said, was previously um, leader of the opposition, now finds himself having to work with his former political opponents. Post-2015, when he was prime minister, 
Vikram Singh actually faced um, some criticism for failing to hold the Rajapaksas accountable for corruption and allegations of human rights violations during the last phase of the civil war. He is, of course, also deeply unpopular. Uh, during the last general elections, his party, the UNP, secured just one um, seat via the national list, which Vikram Singh promptly claimed for himself. He is uh, known as being the ultimate survivor. He's been in politics since the mid-1970s and has been a prime minister six times, despite being unable to complete a full term. Um, his bid was eventually successful as he received 134 votes out of 219, um, which was the majority. And then uh, next up was Dallas Alaha Peruma, who was also backed by the SLPP and specifically a breakaway faction of it, who received 82 votes. As Shweta mentioned, some of the opposition candidates, notably um, the lead opposition party, the SJB, also announced that they were going to be backing uh, Dallas during the vote. And Anura Kumara Disanayaka received just three votes. And uh, what is the background of the other presidential candidates? The other candidate was Anura Kumara Disanayaka, who is the leader of the JVP or the Janata Vimukta Peramuna, and uh, the larger coalition of uh, NPP or National People's Power. Now, given all the intrigue, betrayals and backstabbing which uh, surrounded uh, the hidden ballot, um, I think we can say for certain that uh, since he, he got only three votes, that all the parliamentarians elected through his party voted for him. In his speech after the elections, he stated that there is a huge disconnect between the parliament and the will of the people on the ground. Um, he called for immediate elections. And if we look at Dallas Aloha Pirma, he's somewhat of a wild card. He started his career as a singular journalist before he was elected as an MP for the Mathura district in 1994 until 2001. He's a staunch Rajapaksha ally who was initially with the Sri Lanka Freedom Party, SLFP, before joining the Sri Lanka People's Front, SLPP. His political opportunism can also be seen in that he has voted in favor of amendments that centralize presidential powers, as well as for those that seek to redress power imbalances introduced by opposition parties. His presidential bid also indicated that there are some internal divisions within the ruling party, SLPP, who had announced that they were backing Ranil Vikramasinghe for the spot. And Alaha Pirma has also consistently opposed Tamil demands. Recently, protesters have criticized his long-time affiliation to the Rajapaksha regime and asked how citizens, especially ethnic minorities, could have expected him to deliver justice to their communities. Uh, I'm curious now that uh, Ranil Vikramasinghe is president. I mean, how do you guys think uh, things might unfold now? Yeah, Sana, I think um, one likely consequence will probably be heightened tension between the government and protesters. You know, it didn't help that even in the process of, you know, uh, trying to get uh, a point uh, president, Ranil was, you know, openly kind of trying to coerce uh, SLPP MPs to vote for him. And he, um, one of his promises was that he's going to rebuild the houses that were destroyed or damaged by fire in the protests, which caused a bit of anger because, you know, there are many other dire needs that need to be kind of 
addressed right now and it was seen as kind of a open sort of attempt to curry favor and win votes. As people have already said, one of the key demands has been for Anil to step down and protesters have already indicated that some of them plan to continue protesting. Vikramasinghe has already shown a willingness to crack down on the protests as acting president, authorizing military and police to act without political inf- interference to control the situation, as he put it, after protests on July 13. Shortly before the elections, Vikramasinghe also passed emergency regulations which significantly heightened police powers to crack down on freedom of assembly. And a court order has now prohibited protesters from gra- gathering within 50 meters of the SWRD Bandaranaika statue on Golf Face, which is seen by the protesters as a bid to shift them from occupying the space. Um, I think, for example, some of the tents where people are staying the night is not far from that statue. So from what I've heard, it's seen as you know an attempt to shift people from Golf Face. Um, despite this, Vikramasinghe is seen by some as the best available candidate for presidency, given his relatively better standing in the international community, and with some people arguing that he's perhaps the best position to steer Sri Lanka through negotiations with the IMF. Related to this, within Sri Lanka, his key vote base has historically been from Colombo, especially segments of the business community and the upper middle class who now hope that his election will usher in political stability for IMF negotiations. It's possible, of course, that this is also a silent hope kind of held by those impacted by the crisis as well, who are looking for solutions to the deprivation that they're facing. However, Vikramasinghe will probably have to work with some of his former adversaries in an interim government, Um, So it's going to be an uphill challenge and it's not a given that his appointment alone is going to usher in political stability. And of course, there's also the reality of what a successful IMF negotiation will entail for the public and how protesters will react to that reality, you know, of how long a return to normalcy will take. Um, There are kind of different statements being made about how long it will take. So, you know, the reality of that is um, and reactions to that you know, remains to be seen. Um, but going into that is a whole different podcast in itself. Moving on to our next segment, Around South Asia in 5 Minutes. Reports coming from Myanmar states that the junta government is installing Chinese-built cameras with uh, facial recognition capabilities. Now, this project, uh, which started after the military took over last year, is now being extended to other cities across the country. Um, There are fears by human rights activists that uh, this initiative uh, could be used to crack down on um, activists and uh, dissenters um, who have been uh, described as terrorists by the junta. Uh, it has been uh, already reported that uh, the junta uses widespread surveillance like um, intercepting telecom and web suppliers through spyware to observe communications and crack down on uh, protesters. So many of us might have seen the news of the inauguration of the Padma Multipurpose Bridge in Bangladesh in late June. Uh, this is the longest bridge in the country um, that goes over the Padma River, also called River Ganga in India and is uh, expected to connect nearly 30 million people in the country's uh, southwest to Dhaka. 
and it's been seen uh, you know as a pride project by the bangladeshi government um, because they financed it entirely uh, from their own resources uh, but there was another interesting story linked to the bridge that has seen no reporting outside bangladesh and so this is a uh, a high court verdict issued just 3 days after the opening of the bridge uh, which uh, ordered the government to form a commission within 30 days to identify people who made allegations of corruption uh during the padma bridge project um which you know lasted for over 20 years um and but the pro- the project has actually been mired in allegations of corruption from its very uh, early years uh with both the world bank and the asian development bank um actually backing out of its financing um so the allegations are not without some merit still the court's observations that you know those who made such allegations or claims in the past are quote unquote enemies of the state and the nation seems rather unusual and uh, i wonder if this new commission you know is another instrument that the hasina government can use against uh, dissidents and political rivals so in india there were uh, several cases of harassment of journalists and activists who are critical of the current government the bhartiya janata party and uh, so on 27 june uh, last month mohammad zubair co-founder of the fact checking website alt news he was arrested based on a 4 year old tweet where he had shared a screenshot uh, from a popular hindi movie to make a satirical comment and uh, after the arrest six more fir's or false information report were filed against him all from the state of uttar pradesh and uh, three of these cases are over a tweet in in which he had called uh, right wing leaders hate mongers and uh, zubair was finally granted bail on 20 july on all the seven cases by the supreme court of india and uh, there was another case of harassment of journalist in the state of jharkhand and on 20, on 17 july independent journalist rupesh kumar singh was arrested by the police on charges of supporting maoist groups and the journalist was charged with uh, draconian law uapa and lawful activities prevention act and sections of the indian penal code and uh, rupesh is an independent journalist and writes on issues of adivasis and other marginalized communities uh then uh, kashmiri journalist sana irshad mattu was stopped from traveling abroad on 2nd july despite holding a valid visa and the authorities did not give any specific reason for not allowing, allowing her to travel Then filmmaker Avinash Das was detained by the Gujarat police on 19 July for uh, sharing a photo of India's home minister Amit Shah with an arrested IAS officer on Twitter. Uh, apart from journalists, I mean, last month, uh, social activist Tista Setalwad and two other police officers were arrested by the Gujarat Crime Branch in the 2002 Gujarat Rights case. and the charges are that she allegedly fabricated evidence to frame innocent people in the rights case and for being part of a larger conspiracy to frame the then chief minister narendra modi and others as accused in the case uh, the activist and others have refuted all the charges against them and have sought bail uh then an fir was registered against a social activist and founder of narmada bachao andolan movement medha patkar and 11 others for allegedly misusing funds collected for education of tribal children uh medha patkar has refuted the allegation and has also hinted that the complainant was connected with the hindu nationalist group rss 
पंजाब असम्बली में पीटीआई सरे फहरिस्त तेरेक इंसाफ पंद्रह नशस्तों के बाद एक सौ अठहत्तर आरोप पहुँच गयी तमाम ही हल्कों में पी टी आई के जो सपोर्टर्स है कारकुनान है In Pakistan, the by-elections held in Punjab saw PTI win 15 of the 20 provincial assembly seats up for grabs. This was particularly surprising given the tension between the political party and the military establishment following Imran Khan's ouster as prime minister. The results of the election go against the conventional wisdom in the country that dictated it was impossible to win over the most populous province in the country while taking an anti anti military establishment stance thus even groups who have had their reservations with the pti in the past have welcomed the results as a moment of democratic strength in the country this also provides pti the momentum for the upcoming general elections and while no one can predict what the results of it can look like as things currently stand the party appears to be a strong contender for federal power once again and now it's time for our next segment bookmarked So my recommendation is a documentary on Netflix it's called 14 Peaks and it follows um the story of a Nepalese mountaineer Nirmal Purja and his ambitious desire to climb all 14 8000 peaks 8000 meaning those which are taller than 8000 meters in just under 7 months which would be a, re- a record breaking attempt only 14 mountains in the world higher than 8000 meters the fastest time to climb all the 14 or 7 years the plan is to go and hit the summit directly if i can stay alive i can do this in 7 months and what i found interesting about this documentary is it's positioned as this attempt to reclaim mountain climbing as something that has historically been pioneered by south asians and especially nepalese um you know it's widely known that the sherpas usually pave the way for foreign climbers to ascend safely but their names and role are usually obscured or downplayed in contrast i think nirmal highlighted um his all nepali teams work and efforts Um incidentally the documentary also made the news because the music which was composed by Nainita Desai was nominated for an Emmy in the documentary category um I mean but I still found that when I watched it that I felt that it centers on you know just one person's ambition um there was also some really interesting parts where you know they are uh, in the documentary there's these interviews with um Nirmal's mother and partner and they kind of express concerns about the ambition of his project and indirectly reveal the toll that it takes on them um another kind of underexplored topic that i thought um didn't really come up much in the film was the cost of mountaineering which can often be a barrier barrier to undertaking these ambitious kind of feats so it's up uh, kind of almost mentioned in passing that Nirmal mortgages his house just to complete his climb and you know i think that reveals a reason why most south asians can't um you know try similar feats um 
I should add that climbing is also, in my view, it, it's often such a masculine activity. Um, I actually used to be part of a group which did quite a few hikes and climbs. And this is coming from my experience where it was just so interesting to watch the emphasis that was placed on endurance, um, where we would actually give each other awards based on who displayed the most stamina during hikes. Um, so I was reminded of that when I was watching So this. stamina in what sense, Raisa? Like uh, getting to the place, uh, like getting to the... Getting to first, the top. getting to the like getting there. Well, it was based on different criteria. So I won one. And by the way, it's, you don't get any rewards for doing this. You just get this. You're just like, you're the winner this time. So for me, it was because um, I climbed uh, Adam's Peak using the Ratnapur, oh, the King's Road, yes. yeah, which yeah. is like, yeah, I, I really liked, enjoyed it too. But it is like more than double the <laughs> Matale yeah. How are the leeches, by the way? It wasn't too bad. But it was off-season, so we climbed oh, off-season. It was raining pretty hard. And one of the other people with me, their knee gave out halfway. So I basically had to drag them up and down the mountain. And that is why I got <laughs> the award. <laughs> so, um, but as I was saying, this is the thing that I feel like in these groups, a lot of what comes out is this kind of emphasis on endurance and stamina, even if it comes at the cost of your own physical health. So, um, but in that sense, I have to say, since we're talking about this, that it's kind of nice to see that there's some groups here which are trying to lower these barriers um, by allowing for more guided group hikes. And I do hope that that continues um, because I think Sri Lanka has a lot to offer in this front, economic crisis aside. And yeah, I guess I should also add, we have a Sri Lankan who successfully summited Everest. Jayanti Kuru Tumpala, and another who attempted and got close to the summit, um, which is, you know, I was reminded of that because the film also talks about the hype around Everest summits and how it's become extremely crowded as well. Yeah, and uh, we should also add that we're currently, Raisa, you're currently editing an article which briefly talks about uh, about this documentary as well, right? I mean, it's a the article is, I guess, more about why scaling mountains became such a thing. I mean, I, I guess we'll have the article out in the future, but any interesting comments that you found in the review itself? Yeah, I mean, uh, I have been working on this um, this article and that's what I've been kind of, also why I kind of watch 14 Peaks. Um, the review itself actually does touch on a lot of the things that I um, was talking about. Not necessarily the awards, but um, just talking about especially how it's been so um, dominated by um, by white people and without really foregrounding the effort of South Asians. And it's also kind of talking about how even the, the kind of exercise of measuring mountains uh, is part of like an imperial project, which is kind of a aspect that I, I didn't personally know about before, so. Yeah, that's been interesting. It will probably come out in the next few weeks, so keep an eye out for it. Yeah, I mean, I I watched this documentary a few months back, maybe when it was just out. And, uh, I mean, obviously, it's a remarkable feat, and, you know, the protagonist, Nirval Purja, seems like an interesting character and obviously kind of athletically talented and, and hardworking. But, I mean, it was also, like you were saying, you know, this this 
documentary, I guess, is part of this whole move to uh, reappropriate what is the global south or the previously colonized or you know dominated world to kind of reassert themselves and feels like it's part of that narrative that's quite popular actually in kind of in the cultural world in general. Um, although what I did feel it was doing was also in a way, I mean, A, there is this kind of hyper-masculinity that's kind of being associated with, I felt, a particular kind of identity. So in this case, Nepali identity, but also actually the Gorkha identity because uh, Nirmal Purja was a uh, kind of was, you know, in his early career, a Gorkha soldier and actually, I think, left uh, left his job in the in the British military. And I also found, yeah, the kind of, you know, the, in a way, almost kind of orientalizing a particular identity uh, for being fierce and, and brave and enduring and all of that. And also, like, in a way, it touched on the two most well-known cliches associated with Nepal, like Mount Everest and the Gurkhas. And, you know, like, there could not be more cliche kind of connection. But, yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting... Uh, it's an interesting documentation of, of, of a character and I mean, my sense is that someone like Nirmal Purja might also kind of try to build a kind of, I don't know, broader career in the West out of out of these, uh, out of documentary and I think he actually shot, you know, a good chunk of the of the film and was actually quite intimately involved in, in the filmmaking. So, uh, actually that's worth noting as well that um, that his cinematic role is significant. In itself, so in fact, that that is, in some ways, equally impressive. I guess. Uh, shall we move on to other recommendations that we might have? Yeah, um, my recommendation, um, just kind of keeping in theme with our main discussion today, is an illustrated book called *Kaputukak: A Very Sri Lankan Struggle* by Amal Dechakera and Deshan Tenakon. Um, this book is about protest and civic education for children, and it outlines the current crisis in Sri Lanka, and it's about how we got here, our violent past, and the people's struggle in Sri Lanka, and it kind of presents it in this uh, accessible manner. Um, and I think this is a great project, and it's such a useful resource, not just for kids. Um, and the book has some incredible artwork done by Deshan Tenakon. And this is also just one of the many examples of like creative projects we've seen from the last few months, um, from like protest music, artwork, poetry, and so much more. Um, and the creators are distributing copies of this book with schools, libraries, protest sites, and they're also working on, um, Sinhala and Tamil translations. Uh, so I'd definitely recommend checking this uh, book out to learn more about what's been happening in Sri Lanka. Yeah, just to add to that, yeah, it's uh, like you said, Shweta, it's brilliant, and uh, I think it should be like part of uh, like the school curriculum, if yeah. if at all, if it's possible. Um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing the translations also come out. And uh, yeah, yeah, I fully agree. I th- thought it was yeah, the illustrations are so beautiful. And yeah, as you were saying, Shweta, I think it's um, not just for kids because <laughs> unfortunately in Colombo there is a very dismaying apathy around protests, um, which are often, they are often seen as just obstructing traffic 
and I think that you know this kind of um, tries to combat that in a very accessible way. So I would argue that not just kids but adults should read it too. Yeah. Um, just to get an idea of the protest movement, and yes, it's just one of many really uh, interesting for- forms of protest that we've seen coming out of Sri Lanka. And on that note, that's it for this edition of South Asia Sphere. Do head to our website himalmag.com to see more Himal's work. And while you're at it, check out our membership plans and support us. Thanks, everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.